Hello and welcome back to Platform Enterprise, a podcast for people who are pissed off with capitalism. I'm your host, Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and a writer. You can find some of my work over at platformenterprise.com, where, importantly, you can also sign up to get these podcast episodes delivered straight to your inbox every week. Please ignore the noise. My uh, cat is chewing in the background. (laughs) On this week's show is filmmaker Mark Silver. Mark made the incredible documentary, Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets, which told the story of Jordan Davis's murder in 2012. Mark describes in detail why he wanted the film to reveal viewers' own subconscious biases and goes on to explain how that same impulse reveals itself in each of his documentaries, including his decade-long project, The World is Forest, which explores extractive capitalism through the lens of ayahuasca rituals. This is an amazing, an amazing conversation about society, culture, media, and nature, which cannot help but become a blistering review of capitalism. Please visit Mark's website, marksilver.net, and treat yourself to every single one of his films. They are fantastic, and I hope this episode serves as a guide for his body of work. On that note... Uh, If you love it, please leave a five-star rating and a comment to let us know what you think. And I do apologize in advance for the sound quality of this episode. It is a one-off, so um, please don't put that in your comment. (laughs) All right, everyone, enough of me. Enjoy the show. Thank you for coming. I'm really grateful to have you here. Cool. Thanks for having me. So you are a filmmaker extraordinaire. I've watched a couple of your films, actually. We watched Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets last night. And my partner was like, you're interviewing the person who made this. Like, this is like, this is like a real documentary. (laughs) Can you talk a bit about how you got into filmmaking and why? Yeah, so I can't remember why, but I I did a course at Leeds University, which was a sort of semi-sponsored or supported by the BBC, and that would have been, I don't know, I think 95, 1995 through to 99, and it kind of taught me a lot of things I didn't really want to do, and when I finished that, it kind of intersected with the beginning of Mini-DV, which was like this yeah, relatively affordable digital uh, camera technology that, you know, this big that you could like run around wherever and shoot. Um, and uh, that also intersected with some other stuff uh, which was going on at the time with uh, Reclaim the Streets, which actually is like some of the beginnings of Extinction Rebellion, and uh, this big kind of carnival against capitalism that happened in the city of London. Uh, I think The Matrix came out that same weekend. Uh, I was also developing a very late night, no money uh, project, a film um, about the Burning Man Festival back in like 99. And um, it, it's the snowball sort of began from there. And what, what do you think attracted you to, to this medium in particular? I mean, I think back then it was uh, the sort of potential for, I guess it was this kind of combination of a little bit of a sort of like youthful anarchic vibe, uh, you know, questioning power, having the technology and the sort of means to be able to do that, 
um, not really having any sort of aspirations in terms of um, being like part of an institution or anything. Um, and then with, with a kind of combination of uh, beginning to sort of investigate and, and starting to understand like power structures um, and then sort of becoming interested, obviously acknowledging the power of that medium and not really wanting to be using it for, you know, to make whatever commercials or like using that power to give people more profit or whatever. I wanted to use that power to sort of just amplify ideas and voices. Uh, I guess that's like the combination of all that is how it began. And then just being inspired by uh, a couple of sort of films around the sort of time I was like 16, 18, um, and it all sort of pushed me into that direction. Mm, all right. One of the things I actually wanted to ask you about later on, but you've just sort of mentioned it, um, you know, like film, uh, using the power of film to try to highlight power structures and then hopefully subvert power structures by empowering people because it's such an accessible medium. How do you find that, um, like, funding opportunities or the capital behind the filmmaking industry sort of influences what you're able, to, what stories you're able to tell? So, look, I, at the very beginning, I was just doing very, very low budget stuff, very, very DIY, um, both cameras and editing. Uh, and that, I guess that got me to a certain point and it was very, very outside of any sort of structure. And, you know, me and a couple of friends were just sort of very fortunate that we, well, frankly, I think anyone who actually finishes a film is fortunate, but we were able to like actually like get some late night uh, broadcast, sorry, I'll wait for um, get some of that broadcasted. And then we, we kind of got a bit, uh, we, we got a bit burnt on one project that we did with the BBC. Um, uh, which led us to um, start working with a bunch of different musicians where we would be creating the sort of visual backdrop for their concerts and stage shows mm. and stuff, um, which, which took us away from documentary. But we had all this material, like the rushes of all these documentaries that we'd made that we were using, remixing essentially for these big screens. And I, and I went from that, I, I did that for many years and then kind of just had to pause that. Um, the, the guy I was working with carried on working in that field and I sort of moved more into feature-length documentaries uh, or back into feature-length documentaries. And I was just very fortunate that at that time um, there was the beginning of a sort of funding movement that was less about commissioners and broadcasters and more about um, aligning sort of foundations that were interested in the power of storytelling and social change and had started to sort of coalesce uh, like different people in different networks, which meant that let's say you were an organization that was interested in migration, then you might be interested in putting money into that film I was making, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that whole scene is now massive. And when I first, like got into this, which would have been about 10, 15 years ago, it was sort of the beginning of this sort of like new relationships. Now that's really, really changed because 
you know, the big streamers are, are sort of on board and it's all like it's a whole different system. Um, but I just happen to kind of come up at, at the sort of beginning of this like interest in social change and, and where else you can get funding beyond the sort of traditional, um, yeah, commissioners and funders and broadcasters. Why do you think that happened at that point? Do you think the general public was more keen to, to learn about these sorts of movements or was it just a drive from like the third sector? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was a drive of, I mean, for me, it was just like some really specific people um, that um, had a vision um, at, the, at the time. Um, for me, I mean, there were many people, but the, the people that I intersected with was, um, in particular, was this organisation that's now called Doc Society, but it used to be called Brit Doc. There was um, another, uh, the Ford Foundation, who were a massive organisation in the US. Um, anyway, there were, ma- there were many others who were sort of coalescing around the same ideas. But I don't, I don't think it necessarily like came from audiences. Um, I think it came from like people who were working in those fields and realizing the sort of limitations of of broadcasters uh, in this type of area. And just one final question on that: Why do you think broadcasters were limited? Because now, I mean, now they have to be behind things now because like Netflix will fund it or Prime will fund it or like somebody's going to find it, so they're gonna have to you know catch up but why do you think there was this reticence a couple decades ago i don't even look i i wouldn't say that i like knew that world well enough um to know that it was reticent but i think it was just like in the in the small areas that i interacted with it it it, i don't know if it was reticence more than just sort of naivety it was just this is the way we do stuff and we are the voice, and either adhere to this voice or, you know, go and be independent. Mm. Um, and I just think it was that they didn't have the vision or the imagination that there are many parallel trajectories with, within which to tell stories and many parallel people out there who have stories to tell that, that don't necessarily like fit into the mould of, of, you know, at that time for me it was like the BBC, but you know, I, that was just my experience. Alright, okay. Uh, what attracts you to the specific stories that you tell? Um, for example, Jordan Davis's murder of three and a half minutes, ten bullets. Why that particular story? So in that story, um, so I'd done a, a feature length film before that, um, which was a hugely steep learning curve. Um, In what way? Uh, it was, a, it was, I don't think it, so it was a very ambitious, essentially it was, it was a story of um, the discovery of this dead body in the desert of Arizona. Um, and the question we sort of asked at the beginning uh, of like the concept of it was, what does a dead body lying in the desert of Arizona, uh, Arizona reveal to you about the world? Mm. Long story cut short, that, that dead body was one of many that are found every summer of migrants who are traveling from South America, getting into the US, and then for various systemic reasons end up dying in the desert. And we followed the um, identification of that body and that body going all the way home. And if that wasn't enough, we then uh, worked with Gael Garcia Bernal, who's 
the big Mexican actor, um, to sort of retrace the steps of this person who made this journey through Central, oh, wow. through Central America into the US. Um, so it was a little bit sort of hybrid um, in terms of Gael's role. Um, and it was also hugely risky to think that uh, this body would be identified because many bodies don't get identified. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, if you ask me to do that now, I would, it would ring all types of alarm bells because I'm experienced <laughs> now to sort of know what it means to take on a project of that sort of complexity. Mm. Uh, but at the time, I was like wonderfully naive. And, you know, it's like, oh, cool, yeah, let's do that. Uh, <laughs> by the time, so that, I'm very, very, again, very, very fortunate that that, you know, kind of worked. I mean, some people liked it, some people didn't like it, but whatever, it kind of worked. And um, I premiered at Sundance in 20, can't remember, maybe 13, 2013, um, or even, no, maybe, yeah, 2013. And someone who saw that film um, subsequently sent me, a couple of months later, sent me an article about Jordan Davis's murder. Um, and by that point in my so-called career, I had I very much appreciated the power of like a one-person micro story mm. containing hugely systemic universal issues. And if you, and it, and I I was starting to appreciate the sort of alchemy of like wow if you can get one individual human story that that holds all of this other stuff then it's totally worth you know seeing if there's seeing if you can develop that idea so when I received the the first time I received that story um, it was a wonderful sort of yeah it was like a moment where which which really rarely happens. Lots of other projects take me absolutely years to like get consider how to make them, but this one was just like, oh my god, I can see that whole film. Like this is the film, mm. uh, and and pretty much like two years later, that was the film. Like the the post it notes that were on the wall on the first day was kind of the film, um, and you know through the murder of one person, you were able to talk about. Um, you know, hugely complicated systemic issues of, of race and guns and law and um, family, like all of these, you know, powerful issues in the US. And this was before also, uh, before Black Lives Matter uh, was a thing and before people used words like white supremacy. Uh, but but it's, it's a super interesting film to watch, like, today, uh, post-Trump and post, well not post Black Lives Matter, but you know, post, post what Black Lives Matter have already achieved and you know, in the, in the sort of uh, age of pushing down statues and like asking who has the right to tell whose story, like all of those things that now um, are super cool that those things are like all come to the surface. Uh, back then that was still all to, you know, back then that was all still to come. I found it incredibly moving and horrifying. Um, and something I found really interesting about what you did, and I think it is like um, a kind of British filmmaker thing. Like I, I hate watching American documentaries because everything's just like made really, really obvious. You know, like they tell you what to think or they tell you exactly what's happening. And this 
you know, it was a story about one boy's murder and yet it was a story about race in America. But you really didn't, like, you didn't push it. Like, you really, how you told the, the story about race was listening to the, the Michael Dunn's recorded calls from prison where he compares himself to a raped woman, a battered woman, you know, the victim and all of this, even though he killed a boy within, 10 minute, uh, within three and a half minutes of pulling up to a space. And, I mean, like, was that difficult to kind of pull back from wanting to, like, really go for him? How did, how, like, how did you choose to navigate it like that? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I work with, um, and I still do, actually. That was the first film we made together, but I still work with him, uh, the editor, who's, who's a, whose name's Emiliano, who um, uh, I would say is very sensitive to, to not over-sentimentalising sen anything. So part, partly that's down to, um, you know, a lot of nuance when it comes to editing. But also there was another sort of driver for that, which was um, if you present the killer up front as the sort of boogeyman, then then yeah, like how are you going to learn anything, right? Like, because he's like the baddie from the outset. So where, where are you going to go with that? So there are a couple of things that happened. So um, it was sort of important for me that as a white, well, as a white filmmaker, but also as like a white audience, um, I wanted people to at least have the opportunity to reflect on their own like subconscious biases, conscious and subconscious biases, right? Because um, whilst, and that's a very broad spectrum, but whilst like you and I presumably wouldn't like lean into our glove box and pull out a gun and shoot somebody, um, there is a certain amount of conditioning that we should question, which is why would, why do I have any understanding of someone like Michael Dunn feeling fear when four black kids playing really loud hip hop wearing mm. pull up next to me in a Jeep? Why does that, why might that trigger fear? And that doesn't mean that I'm like um, in support of Michael Dunn, but I'm very interested and I think it's like essential for us to undo and investigate like why does that trigger fear and not love? Like, so Michael Dunn obviously was like way up the other end of that spectrum and pulled out a gun and killed, you know, blah, 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 blah. We, that, that's what happened. But I, I really wanted audiences to see a little bit of themselves or at least understand a like some of the way that they had been conditioned mm. to also have some sort of, for whatever reason, fear of that iconographic image of four black kids mm. wearing hoodies playing hip hop. Um, so partly I didn't want to like burst all that from the outset. Like I wanted the audience to horrifically understand that or, or reflect upon the fact that the conditioning that Michael Dunn went through, we have all been through because it's just inherent in, you know, history and culture and the way that things have evolved. And by recognizing that, we can do something about it and stop it in ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. But the other, and the other, so, you know, there's a very long-winded answer, but there's all like different things which intersect to, to sort of help me answer. And the other, the other beat to it was, um, we requested sort of interviews with Michael Dunn and his family and blah, blah, blah. And uh, that was all turned down. They didn't want to do any of it. Um, and then we discovered these phone calls 
um, that you know, in all honesty, so so it's absolutely crazy that in within the uh, prison system in the state of Florida, those phone calls are on public record. Mm. Uh, so all you need to do is like put in a request, and then you just get with like CDs delivered to you, and we you know very very quickly realized that the sort of uh unadulterated way that michael dan speaks to his uh then uh fiance um was going to give us uh an insight into michael dan's character mm. that in all likelihood we would never get in an interview mm. um, so and then we realized how we could sort of slowly craft his character and then what I also was interested in doing was like putting us the audience making us almost feel like we were the jury um and in that sense like come to like you said like, I don't want to be told everything up front like in a sort of like US document like I wanted I wanted you to be able to like sit there almost as a jury member Collate all of this information as a jury member does, and then like reach your own conclusion. Mm. I mean, that was definitely what was happening <laughs> during during the process. It reminded me actually of um, the staircase, the the Netflix documentary. But I mean, that's told over like twenty one episodes or something. You know, it's a it's a mammoth case, and yet you you did it. You know, in like two hours, adequate sort of interviews with the family interview with the friends and then the courtroom stuff as well and it was a drama like when the the fiance came on to say that he hadn't said those things i mean we were like this at the telly like oh my god no way is she doing this Fuck. but i just oh it was so it made me think about so many things i mean subconscious bias definitely like i was thinking okay how would i feel if i drove up to, nah, I'm never going to pull out a gun. I was raised in Scotland. You know, that shit just doesn't happen. But would I feel a kind of fear? And what kind of, what level of fear would I need to feel in a culture that really plays on people's fear of the other in order to then, like, want to defend myself or whatever? If I was in that culture where that was actually celebrated and encouraged, you know, what would happen? Um, it made me uh, think a lot about the performativity of our legal system as well. Um, I, you don't get to see that happening in the UK so much unless you actually go and sit in a court because they're not recorded. But like that defense lawyer, the bullshit, the lies that they came up with that were obviously lies. And it's like, what, you know, Lady Justice with her scales, where's the morality in this actually if it's just about winning or losing? And was that the case when law was created? You know, that's where I was going in my head watching. Oh my God, that's an amazing point because I had exactly the same experience when I was in the in the courtroom shooting it, and it was, it was exactly that. I literally was like flabbergasted that the legal, you know, at least in that time, it felt like hold on, like justice, so-called justice, is sort of only based on who's the best storyteller. And he was a good storyteller. I mean, I obviously hugely dislike his mm. story, but you can't deny he was a very good storyteller. Oh, God, definitely. I mean, that thing about... Um, uh, for anyone listening that's not seen the documentary, um, the 
police officers that were called to the scene did not check the the plaza they didn't check the gas station and they didn't check the car and, and the dumpsters and everything like that until four days after um so michael dunn the defendant and his lawyer concocted this absolute bullshit story about having perceived a barrel of a gun in 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 the car which would have been his quote-unquote then self-defense and they were of um the weapons of mass destruction, you know, like the, <laughs> the unknown unknowns. It's like yeah. I, I'm looking for something that I don't, that I have no reason to look for this thing that does, that might not exist. Yeah. Um, and also, again, like when you watch that now, that kind of feels normal today because of our sort of like post-Trumpian fake news madness. But back then, it was again like it just felt like whoa this is this it the, to me that was like my first experience of sort of like the power of fake news <laughs> mm. oh yeah that's interesting actually i mean the power of narrative yeah but, like the goal to stand up in court and to lie and to just dance your way through it's you know it's like chicago you've seen the musical chicago yeah. with uh, richard Gere and his razzle dazzle them routine like it was exactly that and it's, I mean, it's so, t um, if you're thinking about putting somebody back out on the street, like that case, and like so many cases, if it's about somebody's like racial prejudice that allows them to shoot a teenager and then leave the scene and only kind of vaguely hand themselves back into police to just explain their actions because they feel so justified in their killing of another human being because of the color of their skin. Like it's about putting that person back on the street and this performance is what is going to decide that. It's it's terrifying. And I don't know if it's like as bad in the UK or in other legal systems, but I mean, Florida's like... Isn't Florida the state where they let Ted Bundy go up and defend himself? Really? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think so. I think that's where he ended up and he was his own defense lawyer. Yeah, nice. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, okay, so you, you were there, you were filming during the courtroom. Um, obviously, you were there as a media person, a documentary maker, but a, a member of the media, yeah. um, to tell this story. How did you find that the American media treated this story? Um, I, well, it had come just after uh, the Trayvon Martin um, uh, case, but also, I think, if I'm right uh, in thinking... I think uh, Zimmerman was acquitted maybe this about, God, I think about six months before this case, before this case went to court. So I think they were very kind of primed. And also that was also in Florida, like an hour away, I think, from, or a couple of hours away from, from where this took place in Jacksonville. Um, and there was, you know, this, I, there's a scene where, um, Trayvon's dad, or, or Jordan's dad, is telling this story about Trayvon's dad calling him and saying, welcome to this club that like, no parent wants to be a member of. So I think the, the, the media was sort of primed for another one of these types of stories. Um, and, and I must say, like the journalists, certainly the local journalists that I met, um, you know, and I was in and out of Jacksonville, you know, I can't remember how many times, but many times over, over a few months that obviously they have to um, present in a certain neutral way, just being, me, being like news media. 
but certainly like off camera uh, they they were completely in support of you know Jordan's family and and completely against um, as you you know rightly said like the bullshit of of the storytelling of Michael Dunn and his lawyer um, and um, I think they were you know just as happy as anyone else when went without ruining the film but when you know when eventually sort of justice was done mm. um, but I but I also th- I, I don't know um, can't speak to sort of non-local media so I didn't really interact that much because I was trying to engage with local media because they were sort of part of the story like their representation of the case was part of the story so I I can only sort of answer that from uh, like my interactions with local media who were all like really cool and actually we we did follow um we, we didn't make it into the film but we did spend a, quite a few days with one of those journalists and sort of got to understand Jacksonville through his eyes which gave you know a bit more context to the to the Jordan Davis story, but in the end we didn't need it in the film. All right. So who was it that was portraying the case as the loud music case, as opposed to the racial murder? Because that's yeah. mentioned in the film a lot, but the you know the cultural yeah. context. Yeah. Uh, so I, that's a really good question. So from what I remember, um, that was much more sort of national and international. Um, so, you know, a uh, little tagline. I mean, I don't know if it was exactly CNN, but, but you know, that type of media, like the big media, recording it in a loud music case. Uh, Isn't that you're absolutely right. Like, how on earth that's called the loud... You know, it's like calling the Trayvon Martin the Skittles. You know, I don't know if you remember the story, but he was, you know, like, went out to buy some Skittles. And uh, um, it's like calling that the Skittles case instead of, again, like, the, the absolute racist murder case. So, hang on, because this is, this is quite an interesting um, dichotomy, actually, then. So, local grassroots level, it was presented pretty objectively, and journalists were fairly, you know, on the understanding that this, like, this is racial profiling, whether or not we can say it on camera. Um, but on a national, international level, that was when the, the most important aspect of this case was ignored or downplayed. Because normally it would be the other way around. When we think of quote-unquote ignorance, it would be on a kind of rural or local level and, you know, the big actors in whatever industry would understand what's going on. Mm. So how do you... I know, I know you're a filmmaker and you're not, next, you know, you're not a professor no, in like American culture. But. Um, no, but I think that's, that's a really good point. And... Um... So, I mean, I could, I could kind of read it in two ways and, and well, to be honest, like, without having all the sort of like references of, of a few, you know, what is now six years ago or something, six, seven years ago. But, but um, look, I, the, the way I could read that is that uh, the loud music case attracts viewers and audiences, right? Like, it sounds crazy. Um, so it's not, I wouldn't, it's not necessarily that they were playing down everything else that was part of that story and much more important parts of that story, um, but it was probably just playing up the loud music thing just to do, you know, just to boost ratings. Right. Um, that's not to justify it because I totally agree. Like, why on earth it has? Why? Why is it even about boosting ratings and not about 
you know, holding up the mirror to what's actually going on. Yeah. Mm. And actually, this is a fantastic segue into something else I wanted to ask you about. Um, because, you know, like, I- I'm a journalist, I work in media, um, and I am very very painfully aware of kind of what's going on at the moment with this movement against quote-unquote mainstream media um and obviously like photography and film and art are all forms of media as well um so I wanted to ask you like what you feel the the different role is like a documentary maker would play in society and for a society rather than just you know your investigative news like your panorama special for example um i don't know i think i think like the panoramas and the news and and those the the energy of of the the energy they give off is uh, for me it feels like the institutional voice let's say and I think what sort of independent documentary it still uses you know investigative journalism or yeah it still uses uh, the skill set um, the panoramas and the news and other document TV documentaries uh, need to use but for me the energy they give off is something different and I think that the energy is more about empathy maybe than uh, data like I find I find like the news and sort of you know straight so to speak documentaries is just about the like, exchange of information which is not don't get me wrong I'm not against you know that's that's a necessary thing <laughs> um, it's just not what turns me on but it, I, it completely has its place of course um, but when I think about the things that, yeah, if I want to be informed, uh, you know, I read books or I, you know, look at stuff on the internet, or whatever it is, uh, or I watch a, not that, not that I do, but I, I would have back in the day watched a panorama or something. But if I want to be moved or touched or have my perception of something shifted, mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go to like the new, those sources. I would go to a more, uh, for one, yeah, this is a ridiculously broad term, but a sort of like more artistic reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, they could have made a panorama about Jordan Davis or any of the projects I've ever made. That there will be panoramas and news articles about them, but just whether they would have affected. I mean, let's just say you because you watched it last night. You know. Like whether that whether that article or that news piece would have affected you in the same way as as you know that particular documentary did, um, you know I doubt it. Just it just wouldn't have it would have worked on you at a different frequency, and I and I just kind of am more interested in that frequency than the sort of like you know news frequency, um, and I think the. The, the sort of the power to shift people's perception it's 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 more seductive you know to do it through the sort of like artistic documentary trajectory than it is to do it through the news trajectory do you think that news could benefit from tapping into that 
emotive frequency just a touch just a little bit more yeah but i i, I do uh but for that to happen it would it would <laughs> i mean it would it the changes that would need to occur are, are, are just epic um because news doesn't perceive itself as needing to do that it doesn't it doesn't think that's its role and it thinks of itself as like superior and objective and um yeah and and true and true and also you know in a it, in another way you need um time and money or if not money you certainly need time um to build relationships let's say with like Jordan's parents like the relationship I've built with them or the relationship we shared it's been impossible for a news journalist to build because you know that news journalist has to report you know within a certain amount of hours of a story I, I had you know I can't remember exactly but you know I was with them on and off for the best part of a year and a half yeah. I, you know I had nine months to edit that film and I had you know, a, a great budget. Not, I mean, we didn't have the budget. You know, we as as the project was evolving, we raised more and more money as you know, as as we sort of went through the trajectory of making the film. But um, you know, it was enough money to for us to, to sit with the story for long enough to like create something that was um, of its moment, but also future proof in a way. Mm. Like the fact we're talking about it, you know, seven years later, yeah. and it, and it could have been made yesterday, yeah. and which is which, by the way, is completely tragic. That because yeah. we really could have made that film yesterday. Yeah. Uh, You're talking about shifting perceptions. Did what was the outcome of um, three and a half minutes, ten bullets? Did things change in Florida? Well, that's a, that, again, that's a really good question. Um, so. I can't, I don't think anything systemically changed. Like it's not like the law, which again, not to get into it all now, but there's a law that sort of um, allowed Michael Dunn to behave in that way, which is called Stand Your Ground. And it's in half of the states of the US. And as far as I know, it's still in half of the states of the US. It's not like, you know, our film is made and suddenly everything changed. Um, and, and this applies to, you know, again, like all of my projects and many other people's projects, like what, what is the sort of relationship between, uh, you know, what, what, how do things change basically after you've seen a film? So um, there, are, there are millions of like micro unmeasurable changes that would have occurred as a result of that film being put out into the world. Uh, one of them is quite big that his mum, Jordan's mum, is now, um, I can't remember if she's a senator, uh, well, she's a, I can't remember if she's a state representative, anyway, she got very heavily into politics, is now, sorry, she's a congresswoman, sorry, that's who she wow. So, you know, that never would have happened, I mean, I'm not saying it happened because of the film, but I mean, her journey took her to that point, and the film was part of that journey. Who knows what, like, the knock-on effects of that are in terms of gun laws in the future or whatever. Um, and people's understanding of race, but I I don't know I look there are you're, I'm sure you've spoken to many other people in in this sort of field, but you know some some people can directly uh, connect you know very real changes that happened as a result of their their for want of a better term art. Um, I I don't. It's not that I 
couldn't have gone down that route, but that's never really what sort of inspired me. Like the things that I'm inspired by, probably the, you know, the films that I'm inspired by, the books that I'm inspired by, the makers of that world will never know about it. Like it's not, it's not something that's measurable. It's, there's stuff that I experienced at 15, 16 years old that I, I still completely understand, like drive me 30 years later. So the, just in my particular work, I, I just, I guess I subconsciously and consciously make it in a way that I expect that the change that will come of it is is completely beyond me and beyond any sort of structure or, or way of measuring. If someone picked the film up and took it to Congress and changed Stand Your Ground, obviously that's wonderful. But I think I'm, and obviously that would be fantastic, but that's not really the intention of why I, I make, like do stuff. Like my, my intention is more, I guess, on an immeasurable individual level, in some way countering like the mainstream narrative, which kind of goes back to like, you, you know, your whole podcast, you know, like why, why you run your podcast is like, I just want to inject things into that. I want to inject things in a way that counter the mainstream narrative, essentially. So, um, and I don't have the resources to measure the impact of that. I think um, we've talked about power at the beginning. And an important thing that needs to happen in the world is the, the redistribution of power. And one of the important facets of that is like empower, empowering others, i.e., if a filmmaker makes a film and it inspires other people, then they can go out and enact whatever change they want to with that film. It would be kind of... I think it would be pretty weird, actually, if the white British filmmaker was then the you know leading activist for whatever movement that, that could have been born out of um, three and a half minutes, ten bullets. It's, it's not your place. You, you did your part in the ecosystem of a community. And it's yeah. others to take up that kind of mantle, and I think that's a redistribution of power that that we should celebrate, really, um, rather than I don't know, try to measure. Yeah. Uh, for me, anyway. What are you working on now? Because I went on your website, obviously. It's very fancy. Didn't understand how to use all of it. <laughs> Not on <with> that side. <laughs> but I saw that you're working on a Cambridge. Well, you have a feature documentary coming out later this year. Uh, we are the forest into the forest. Uh, yes, sorry, the world is forest. I have to remember. <laughs> the world is forest. Yeah, yeah, we're just uh, yeah, we're just in the music and the sound at the moment. Oh, cool. All right, so I also saw where you've got a Cambridge Analytica project underway. So definitely want to get into that. But can you um, talk about we are? Wait, we are forest. Wait, the I world. Just, the world, the is, world forest. is God. Sorry. Yeah. The world is forest. Yeah, don't be sorry. Um, we are. I'm still toying with the title. So okay. yeah. Um, uh, so that is um, that's been a yes a slow burner of a project. Um, so so I started that in 2013. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Getting out of it like one you know once or twice a year for, for all these years. Um, 
So now that it's finished, I'm just beginning to understand what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so it began by being a sort of film about ayahuasca, which uh, is this, I don't know, for anyone that doesn't know, is this plant medicine uh, that indigenous people in the Amazon regions use. Um, uh, and uh, as I got kind of deeper and deeper into trying to understand what a film about ayahuasca might be, uh, it really became, and I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm, you know, sharing this co co comedically or whatever, but um, I'm, I'm only really, I'm genuinely only really just sort of understanding what it is now that it's sort of, in inverted commas finished and like speaking back to you, you know, like you watch it and it speaks back to you. And this is what I mean, like with three and a half minutes, it, it was what it was the whole time. But with this film, it's, it's not at all been like that. It's, it's, and it's, you know, and it still isn't. But, but, but somewhere it's a film about um, us, our relationship with, with nature, the acknowledgement that we are nature, that, that it's, uh, we, sh we shouldn't and, and can't carry on thinking of ourselves as sort of like hierarchically above nature or that nature is something to extract from or possess. So I mean, ultimately, you know, again, it fits into like, I, I imagine like the, the many themes that you're already like speaking with people about if, if you are investigating sort of capitalism. So, you know, in the journey of making that film, um, which by the way, I mean, it actually links to Cambridge Analytica stuff, which you can get into in a minute, but um, essentially like the, the sort of Westerners going to the Amazon trajectory uh, has always been this sort of extractive relationship, this colonial relationship. And, you know, you could even say that Westerners going to do ayahuasca is, is potentially uh, part of that trajectory and sort of yeah. form of extractivism is it used to be rubber or oil or the trees or med you know whatever and now it's spiritual extractivism uh, and in some places that is you know you could argue that's what's occurring um, but at the same time uh, it's because this stuff is so nuanced uh, you know many indigenous people are super happy that that people are coming to the jungle and taking this medicine and starting to sort of again you know have their perception shifted and starting to sort of not just learn but sort of experience through the sort of power of this plant medicine um that the trajectory that the, the one trajectory they were brought up on uh, which you could say is capitalism uh is by no means the only way to live so yeah it's a, it's, it's it's a very nuanced complex um thing to make film about <laughs> uh yeah and i have to um and it, i suppose it's, it's a bit of a loaded question why just westerners relationship to the amazon because the abuse of other people and the abuse of um the rainforest in particular has been conducted by every single nation. Um, you know, there was a genocide against the people of Papua New Guinea, the Indonesians. Um, still today, the, the Malaysian government literally kicks out its own indigenous people and burns down their settlements in order to sell off their rainforest to oil palm companies or whatever. Um, it's, 
it's not just a no western yeah. problem no absolutely and you're totally right like in in all those countries like brazil peru ecuador you could say exactly the same thing and mm. um, so you're right that so when i sorry so when i refer to westerners going i mean westerners who are going to retreat centers right. to drink ayahuasca because for, for absolutely legitimate reason you know because they have a trauma that western medicine couldn't help them with so they for whatever reason found out about this other form of medicine um in terms of like going back to your point that yes in terms of the sort of types of people who are in power who are you know destroying extracting etc etc from the amazon um i i would say that that mindset was brought to that part of the world at the in the time of colonialism okay um, and that has like, if in the way that capitalism is, ha it happens everywhere. Um, that has, uh, in the same way, it you know, eroded other ways for us in Europe to uh, other ways of being for us in Europe. It just went to Latin to South America back in the day, and eroded other ways of being. So then now, you know, hundreds of years later, have someone like Bolsonaro, who is, you know, the 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 worst type of, yeah. you know, racist, misogynist, anti-indigenous, extractivist, natural resources are all that matters, et cetera, et cetera, type of character. Um, but you could say that's the sort of pinnacle of, of, you know, extractivist capitalism is like playing out through the person of Bolsonaro. So yeah, you're right. Like the power structures is not about just Westerners. Um, the, it, the the that's just the power of sort of like global capitalism, you know, corrupting any other worldview. Uh, but equally, like in in the particular film that that I'm finishing, um, it is actually the story of sort of two people. So one is people like us going into the jungle um, because of whatever trauma they're carrying and, and, and either healing or not being healed. Um, and the other is this indigenous, uh, well, it's always one character, but an, an indigenous guy representing this community who is coming out of the jungle to uh, go to places like the you know, COP, uh, climate crisis summits and things like that to speak to, uh, to like bring the knowledge from the jungle to these areas of capitalism and, and sort of show or, or try and share and teach that, you know, if you carry on this way, it, it's going to lead to all of our extinctions, not just us indigenous people, but everyone. Because we're, we, the indigenous, understand how to live with the world in a way that is not going to lead to its destruction. Whereas you, the extractivist with with an extractivist mentality are basically suicidal you're going you're like whilst you might gain in the short term in terms of profit you know if you think with like, an indigenous mindset about future generations you are your 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 modus operandi is ultimately suicidal because you're destroying everything what a fascinating conjunction um yeah, to have done both 
to have explored both. Um, I actually have a particular interest, um, personally. It's kind of like a love-to-hate thing of this, um, you know, fucking... Sorry, my mum listens and she hates it when I swear. But, <laughs> like, fucking off to Peru and taking ayahuasca in the jungle to, like, fix yourself. Um, yeah. It really... It, it really drives me mad actually um so could you but I, I don't have any experience with it personally i don't know anybody that's done it i just know it's like a big thing for like quote-unquote spiritual influencers you know to do um yeah. could you talk about any nuance that you found you know like is it actually creating an economy for you know local people um do they enjoy having visitors that are seeking healing you know what's what's really going on behind it not to really um, or anything. No, no, these are all questions that um, were part of the reason it took so long to <laughs> sit with. <laughs> so all of, so I would look in this particular project, there are, uh, I mean, it's the same with absolutely anything, but in this particular project, there, there, are, there are multiple truths playing out all at the same time, right? So, uh, someone I work very, very closely with in the Amazon, who is um, just half indigenous and, and half European, but anyway, she's strongly, you know, like her, her way of understanding the world and where she's lived and everything is super indigenous. And she would, she would, I, you know, not to put words in her mouth, but she would pretty much say what you just said. Like, this is not something which, like, you know, tourists should be coming and messing with. This is something which has, uh, which is deeply, um, part of uh, a way of living and, and seeing the world and to just take the ayahuasca part of it and ignore the rest of the circle that you know like the pie you know like the pie just taking that piece of the pie and not living by all the other parts of the pie is is insulting mm. uh, that on the other hand there are other you know indigenous people I've met who yeah, their their livelihood now depends on it in a positive way. Like they and they and they are using that money to like educate a new generation of young people, uh, so that they learn the ways of the elders and they don't migrate to the city, which is you know right. where they make money and etc. etc. And equally, the you know, some of the uh, visitors, the what they call pasajeros, if you don't want to say westerners, like because it's not just westerners, but the pasajeros, the people who drink the medicine you know i have some of those people i can see go back into a hyper capitalist sort of environment a social influence of blah 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 la you know type lifestyle and their you know their capitalism is in some way enhanced by by the cleaning experience that they've had in the jungle uh whereas other people have Deeply transformative, you know, experiences um, and hugely traumatic things that have happened to them that have driven, you know, the whole direction of their life since they were kids. They they have been able to see in a in a vision, uh, in a completely different way, and by seeing their past differently, it it has inadvertently changed the way their future will play out. So all of that is going on. All of that is going on. And if anything, I think a little bit like, I mean, if you, you know, going back to the, um, 
the subconscious bias of, of you know what we were trying to bring to light in three and a half minutes it's like if we are having a conversation about that new, all of those nuances it can only be a good thing because currently no one's really talking about all those nuances um, and, and the fact that it triggers a conversation about those nuances I would like to think I mean look the film's not out maybe no one will want it anyway and all the rest you know some films just don't like maybe it's the I'll send you a link and that'll be it. Um, but you know, it, I'd, I'd like to think that yeah, people will reflect on all of that. Uh, and and there are you know retreat centres that are mindful of all the things we're talking about. So obviously, I would be like you know maybe go to that retreat centre because that other retreat centre doesn't consider any of these things or you know. So yeah, it's really really nuanced. And at the same time. Uh, you know, on an individual level, I, I've like journeyed through that, that, you know, since 2013, some of that world. Um, and I've drank ayahuasca like many times in the process of making the film. And I've had, you know, not, not that I would like shout about it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's transformed the way that I meet things and relate to things and um, understand the sort of uh, relationships between like the past, present and future and, and many, many things. It's, it's been hu like hugely, you know, if I, if, if I, I mean, I don't know obviously your upbringing, but I'm just, you know, just, just making a presumption um, uh, that we broadly had a similar upbringing in the sense that we were living in a, in a Western capitalist, blah, 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 society, um, that um, I was only ever taught one way of being and one way of seeing the world. And if you want to um, unlearn any of that or look elsewhere to find other ways of being, uh, I would say, um, in my, you know, my journey or my experience in parallel to making that film it was probably the most powerful other way of seeing the world uh, than what i was brought up on how difficult has it been or easy to bring those lessons home to bring that um, home yeah so i think uh, that is a that's a process so at the beginning uh, you know just amongst friends and family it's a very like evangelistic sort of oh my god i just got back from you know firstly there's a whole load of hype and, and bullshit and iconography you know like all, you know stuff that you've got to like understand what's real and what's hype and what's internet and what's this and what's that uh but you know and that's just like in your general research as you would do anything like, am i going to go to this place and what's it about but then you have like the experience of doing it which is you know an extraordinary experience if you you know like for me coming to it new uh but then i think over time when i started i for me personally when i started to understand that it is not something um that to really begin to understand it you have to understand like a whole everything else the, essentially like the context from which it comes so when I started to understand that, then I think I had a sort of more legitimate relationship with it, rather than it just be a sort of like really interesting psychedelic peaky type of experience, which was mm. which was great. 
but it's sort of totally contextless. And then, you know, once I started to understand the context around it, then then the uh, meaning of it and the impact of it and the, how it transforms my day to day, inverted commas, um, became more powerful. Like even the first few times I went there, nobody mentioned to me, I mean nobody, the history of rubber extraction in the Amazon, which is, a, which is basically like sort of rape, torture and pillage of indigenous people, you know, for, uh, of which all of the profit was went back to places like the city of London, which is really different to the system that we, you know, like the, the, exactly the same kind of like geopolitical system from like 100 or 200 years ago that is in place today. Uh, nobody mentioned that, and 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 so all these Westerners are going there to heal their traumas, and nobody's speaking about like the so-called you know putting words in their mouths. But like, there's no conversation about indigenous trauma. Yeah. There's only about it in the Westerners. So, you know, once I started to understand um, that ayahuasca is just one part of something, you know, a completely different worldview, then it became more interesting. Can I just say, I find it really fascinating how you're grounding this conversation about spirituality in like the physicality of the world, like the Amazon and the people and the history, because so often um, conversations about spirituality kind of end up, you know, in lofty, abstract places, um, kind of like a hangover from all of the religions that really want to remove us from the body and from our place on this earth. And I'm finding it particularly just fascinating. I don't think I've ever heard somebody speak like this exactly. Well, I mean, I, that's equally, I don't think I knew I spoke like that. <laughs> so, no, 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 but I can see what you, I, I, listening to you, I can see what, you, yeah, I can see what you mean. So the, yeah, that is really interesting. And vital. I think part of everybody's quote unquote healing is going to be making peace with the soul, the mind and the body being one, being all of the flesh and being limited flesh. <laughs> one time only. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think you could, you know, say the same of the, the earth and the plants and the animals and just, the, and that, I guess that's kind of like partly what I mean when I, when I say, that over the course of making that film so look i understand like you know i read the guardian and you know i know what environmentalism is or you know power structures are like i know intellectually and and i'm a left-wing blah 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 london you know all the rest of it um but um none of that is experiential like it's Again, like it's it's great information, and it's the information that I'm magnetized to. But it's not experiential; it's just like intellectual. Um, and then I think like the ex yeah the experiences that I've had uh, in the Amazon or with you know with certain people in the Amazon, I made me experience the non yeah this idea of like the non hierarchy of it all, like the 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 that it is that we are part of this ecosystem mm. um, and I guess I don't you know I don't um, 
I guess I think of religion as just like another form of storytelling, uh, you know, and I, 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 I think of religious people as just like people who believe in a certain type of storytelling. I don't, um, so for me, it's not, it's not, I'm not sure I would even, um, be able to speak to uh, the sort of subject of spiritualism. I think I just speak to the to to the sort of trajectory of this 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 sort of trajectory of colonialism, extractivism, capitalism. And then, and all of the narratives that came from that about how we should live, mm. and how and how destructive that is in a plethora of you know a huge spider's web of ways, um, and there that is disconnecting and severing on on all on a again like a whole on all different frequencies from the personal from the body to to the to the world uh to the earth yeah and some of that i experienced with ayahuasca and some of it i just experienced you know in the context of ayahuasca yeah the the severing of like of social relationships of relationships and the and, and then and then I mean this not that I want to segue if you don't but it you could segue now to the world of data and Cambridge Analytica okay and and the whole surveillance capitalism thing because what I so so I was I was exploring over the course of all these years the Amazon stuff and in parallel I was exploring the data stuff and it's uh, there was there was a there was a very powerful sort of moment where I realized that I'm, it, this is the same fucking story. Mm. And the reason it's the same story, ultimately, is because if, if our route, before we went on the journey to the Amazon or before we went on the journey into the world of data, we began that journey with, under the belief system that the, everything is there to be taken. So whether it's rubber, oil, Amazon, spirit, whatever, it's there to be taken. Like that is our belief system, and we, you know, in in it, what I, I mean, like capitalism, right? Um, now, the exact same thing is happening with data, because the journey began at the same starting point. We we entered into the world of the creation of technology and AI and all the rest of it from the starting point of extractivism because we enter, we enter into everything from that starting point for hundreds of years. That is our starting point. So, so it's no wonder that the system of, of data and Google and Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, it's all about the extraction of our data to be used to enhance somebody else's power or somebody else's profit, which is no different to going to the Amazon and extracting whatever natural resources from there for someone else's power or someone else's profit. And when I started to understand that the story of data 
is not about technology. It is a story of power. It's just another... Technology is a tool, but the real underlying problem is a story of power. So that, that, that's just been my... Um, since, th since three and a half minutes, uh, yeah, this, this sort of journey, that I, this sort of parallel journey of um, which, which you would think are two completely different trajectories, like the, the natural, sweaty, humid, organic jungle stuff versus like the cold, you know, yeah. like screen-based data stuff actually, you know, is, is, has now become sort of one story to me. What I, the distinction between the two perhaps, and perhaps I'm wrong, that I, I find interesting is that um, the Westerners going into the jungle or, or the, I can't remember, what was the, the, the word for it, pajas? Um, pasajeros. Pasajeros. So the pasajeros. Like the travelers, journey, the, yeah, people going on the journeys. Yeah, but they mean it once you've drunk the ayahuasca, you're on a journey. Yeah. Okay. But are, are people that can afford a, a retreat, can afford to jump on a plane and go on a retreat and go and dig ayahuasca in the, in the Amazon jungle, um, are benefiting from a natural resource for, for their own story that will probably, if it's a healing, will probably play into their position of power in the world in some way, a positive or a negative way. Uh, but what's quite interesting of um, data is like it is making indigenous of us all. The uh, yeah. billion, yeah. is it now almost 2 billion people on Facebook? We are all in the same boat in which all of our data is being extracted and sold in order to manipulate and propagandize um, and bind ourselves up in a system that is getting increasingly difficult to remove ourselves from. So it's kind of like this fierce exploitation is like, I can't stop thinking, as I'm talking, I can't stop thinking of Madonna's stupid video that she released last year in the bathtub. COVID is the great equalizer. You know, like Facebook's kind of the great equalizer in a way, <laughs> what they're doing to everybody. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, absolutely, because the, you're, you're absolutely right. And the, um, yes, it, it doesn't, in a way, you're, yes, the equalizingness of it is that it doesn't care who you are, what what color you are, what gender you are, what sexual like all, none of it matters. I just want access to you. I don't care about anything else. I just want access to you because once I have access, I can profit from that access in whatever way. Yeah. Yeah. So, what are some? Um scary details that you're finding out working with the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower that you could maybe reveal uh, at this stage. Yeah, no, no. So, so I, 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 um, there was, there was another, you know, amazing journalist that worked on that story for two years before I came on board. I just came on board at the, at the very end to do this film, uh, you know, alongside her story. And and then uh, you know had this relationship with Chris Wiley, who's the who's the whistleblower, um, and you know we tried to develop a few bits and pieces that never came off, but it was a super interesting journey. Uh, but in parallel to that, I'd also um, a couple of other things had happened uh, that that meant I could like sit in that space for for a long time. 
Um, so one was, yeah, I had, I'd been building this relationship with this author, Shoshana Zuboff, who's like wrote this seminal book on all this stuff. Um, and I also um, had this um, uh, sort of embedded fellowship thing within uh, Amnesty International's uh, tech department, uh, which, was all, which was funded by the Ford Foundation, amazingly, um, to sort of look at how can we start telling stories about this stuff, which is kind of completely invisible, and in inverted commas, supposedly complex, and blah, 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 blah. So, so I've, you know, I've been very, again, I'm very, very fortunate to have the luxury of time to just like wallow in that space. And yeah, you know, the, you, I, I probably can't tell you like any shocking stories that you, that you already don't know, but, but, but for me, what it became at first, it was all super shocking very discombobulating the real the horrific sort of realization that there is um you know this you know already it was pretty hardcore that like the the way the world was but but the understanding of how much worse it could get was very brutal when you when you first start realizing all this stuff um but that said it actually isn't the big sort of dramatic whistleblowing stuff that became of interest to me. Obviously, that is like ridiculously essential. But that wasn't what I, the horror, let's say, was actually, and it took me a long time to realize this, but the horror was actually in the banal, meaningless, everyday fragments of our life not the big political takeovers and not it was in the the granular details of our lives that are being collected that that is what is giving people unprecedented amounts of power so there was this very irrelevant story i got told once by um, the head of uh, a head of data at one of the big supermarkets in the uk who I happened to be just be chatting to in a, in a playground where my daughter was playing after the Cambridge Analytica story. Uh, so I just got chatting to, the, to a mum who was there and then we kind of like bonded on this like crazy, I'd just done Cambridge Analytica and she was head of data somewhere. And she said, look, check, what do I do about this? So I know through my, you know, the points club card thing in the supermarket that this woman, she bought some kosher hummus uh, so I can presume that she's religious and keeps the Sabbath on a Saturday. I was like, okay. And then she's like, but because we own lots of other companies and data streams and blah, 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 I also know that um, most traffic accidents happen on a Saturday. And this woman doesn't drive on a Saturday because she's religious and she on the Sabbath she, she's Jewish and she doesn't drive. So shall I offer her cheaper car insurance? because she's unlikely to have an accident on a Saturday if she doesn't drive. So, you know, I can decrease the cost of her insurance. What, what do I do? Is that, is that ethical or unethical? And that was just one of one. And that is a nothing. That story is because of a tub of hummus in your fridge. Yeah. Okay. When, so when I started realizing that the... Imagine how many billions billions of interactions they are accumulating 
with the intention of shifting your behavior in the future. And when I, when I saw it like that, instead of a, you know, a big news scandal kind of level, I actually found the, the, gran, the accumulation of that granular information about my tub of hummus more horrific and more abusive than, you know, the, the big data scandals. Because that's, as you said, that we are all now this raw material from which to extract from. And we know nothing, like the, the disparity between what we know about what is going on and what they know about us, that disparity is so huge. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of, and what I, the, the other thing that I, um, the, I guess that the other, the, the kind of, another big part of that world that I'm really interested in is how all of this is completely invisible. It's completely around us and yet it's completely invisible. So we're completely unaware of the power behind these things. So at the moment, um, uh, yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just in, I'm just developing ideas, but one of the ideas is about how to give people, how to give people the ability to visualize the system that is being constructed around them. Because if you can't, if you can't like see it and name it, and if it's not tangible, which by the way, all of the language of tech companies implies that none of it's physical and none of it's tangible. It's all about the cloud. It's all about, you know, you don't see the streams of data. It's all the Wi-Fi is invisible. The the storage facilities we don't know, like the amount of energy it uses. The like all of it, nobody can see. And I think no, it being it being supposedly invisible is clearly uh, of benefit to to those that have the power. So so part of what I'm interested in doing is bringing visibility to this. I'm thinking of um, Orwell's 1984 um, and how he managed to portray the reach of a surveillance state by having the telescreen in the room that sees you wherever you go there's no blind spots by having the paper like people working at a newspaper desk taking out the old information putting in the new information rewriting history it was because it was visceral it was because you could imagine it and maybe that's exactly how we've kind of let this horror in modern life happen because as you've astutely you know perceived it's completely invisible supposedly and, and how can something so powerful how can none of us be like how can none of us see it it's it's going to it's going to it's it's literally in the process of like taking over democracy and none of us can, I mean, yeah, a few people, but no, yeah, the vast majority of us, we can't even argue about it because we can't even see it. 
Mm. So I, I just got to a point in all of this research and development and, you know, whilst I'm hugely appreciative of, of being involved in, in things like the Cambridge Analytica story, which was, you know, one of the most mind-blowing, exciting periods of, like, you know, work that I've ever done. When I had this, like, completely other end of the spectrum hummus conversation, mm. it, it really, like, woke me up. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, it makes you question what like what do we value as our values because this is how they sell it isn't it like oh but if we have more data on you we'll be able to offer you deals we'll be able like you're gonna see ads no matter what but we'll be able to offer you ads for what you need you know and it's like oh yeah no that does sound efficient and, and that does sound better and I mean if I can save some money then why not and it's like that that's where they get you because in a capitalist system the most important value, the most precious value is the financial value. So like Facebook is like, hey, you know, we'll connect you to everyone you know, no matter where you are, and it's free. By the way, we're harvesting all your data. Ah, oh, yeah, but it's free though, isn't it? Like, <laughs> and everybody's on it. So like, how do you leave? And oh, I'll be, I'll be missing out on some kind of thing. And not just FOMO, like I'm literally gonna miss connections. Like this is how the world is built now. I'm on this invisible thing. And, and don't get me wrong, like, I still want all of that. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I want to be connected in that way, you know, but I just don't want it to be at the expense of, you know, ultimately, like, my free will. I don't, I don't want to have to um, be manipulated in the future to connect to my, like, sister in the present. Like those two things don't have to, that doesn't have to be the way it works. I could be connected to my, you know, to my family in a digital way without having my data extracted. Absolutely. There's, um, there's a new social network thing that's um, launching at the moment. It's called Satellite. I actually interviewed the founder and was so well, impressed with what they've built. Um, I'm now, you know, I try and help out in any way I can, essentially. And they've, they've coded an algorithm that prevents echo chambers. So it's all about like organic reach and diverse reach as opposed to just the same people interacting with each other over and over again. Wow. And they've built the code in such a way that you can, and I don't, like I know what it means now, but I'm still not very good at explaining it. Like you can fork it. So if they ever become like evil overlords, if they ever become the next Zuckerbergs, um, anyone techie on the site can just take all of the data that already exists and create a new satellite for everybody to continue using that protects your data. Wow. Um, yeah, 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 because they are so sick of, they're two Californians that are just so upset with how like this dream of a utopian internet has been capitalized on um, by exploitative people and they're trying to do their bit to help um, yeah. yeah it's 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 an amazing thing to see oh mark i think i could speak to you all day about everything um but i'm not gonna dig up more than your of your time that i already have thank you for such a fascinating and varied conversation no the same thank you thank you it's been such a pleasure. I'm going to have to, I think, have you back every time you release a film. Yeah, well, that would be every, like, 10 years at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that won't be that often. <laughs> oh, 
I have to ask you, um, and I forgot to ask you to prepare this actually, but is there somebody you would like to platform much like Charlie platformed you? Yeah, let me have a think. There's a, there's a few people. I mean, in any, in any of those fields we've been talking about, um, mm. there's a few people I can send your way. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Thank you, Mark. Thanks so much. All right, wicked. Thank you. Hello, me again. That was amazing, wasn't it? You can find Mark at marksilver.net, that's Mark with a C, where you can stay up to date with all of his projects. And before you go, please don't forget to leave a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're listening on and subscribe over at platformenterprise.com. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. See you next week.